welcome to this month's edition of the Archimedes Podcast. I don't really think it deserves that sort of entry. But anyway, here we are again, talking about evidence-based paediatrics and child health in the setting of the archives of diseases of childhood. For those of you that are new to this podcast, we talk about a couple of clinical queries, so things that happen to people where they thought, I wonder if that is the right thing to do, and then used an evidence-based medicine approach to try to get to an answer. And that really means coming up with a really precise question that you can ask the answer of the literature that's out there, the, the, the science that's been done in this area, then going out and trying to find what's there, having a, a sift through it, trying to pick the best bits of information that come through, and that's best on a methodological basis. So that means you need to appraise that information, and there's appraisal in these as well, to say, what do we think the risks of biases are? What do we think isn't in these studies? What what can we take out? What's the, the clinical message that comes from synthesising all this information to Together. And that synthesis is then presented as the clinical bottom lines. So we've got a couple of those, and we've also got our usual snippets about how to do evidence-based medicine. And sometimes that's a, a methodological element, and sometimes it's a highly practical one. Now, this month's podcast is all about some of my favourite drugs. I'm a paediatric oncologist, so if you say ondansetron, dexamethasone, prednisolone, I think, great, we've got an absolutely superb way of addressing leukaemia, lymphoma, and stopping people being sick. And then you get to this and you find out that this is not what we're dealing with here, and we're talking about paediatric emergency medicine frontline stuff. So the first of those questions is going to be a report from a team in Glasgow. Now this was Susan Wallace, Nigel Chan, Heidi McKinney and me who added some methodological advice to this one. It concerns a five-year-old with asthma who's coming in and usual treatment, inhalers, that sort of thing, prednisolone being considered but then the the doctor on the front door thinks ah oh, prednisolone i'm not sure she's going to tolerate this prednisolone makes kids throw up all the time i wonder i wonder if you could use dexamethasone instead because that's a single shot we use it in croup would that be any good the team went away with the structured clinical question of in children with an acute asthma attack is dexamethasone as good as prednisolone in reducing the symptoms of the asthma attack and also had a better side effect profile they did a search across a number of different databases pulled together potentially relevant articles and then looked through them for the best quality articles to answer this now as i'm sure you'll remember the best things to answer a head-to-head -head drug comparison like that would be a randomized controlled trial and they found two rcts and one quasi rct now a quasi rct is one where the randomization isn't truly random so it might be something like whether your date of birth ends in an even or an odd number or what your hospital number is that sort of thing quasi randomization can run into problems partly because it's not truly random so you haven't got your your half and half there partly 
because when a kid comes through the door, if you've already clicked how this works with the, the even ones get the dexamethasone, the odd ones get the prednisolone, you can then sort of use your, your clinical expertise or your clinical theories to go, mm, not sure that one really wants that sort of treatment, so I won't put that one on the trial. And you end up biasing the kids that go into the trial in the first place. And so, if possible, we try and avoid quasi-randomization. It's better than nothing, but it's not as good as full-on randomization. Anyway, off that sidebar and back onto what these trials were. There are two trials of 60 kids and one trial of 226 kids. Now, all of these studies looked at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram of dexamethasone in a single dose, and they compared it to some form of standard-ish prednisolone regime. Another trial in there also looked at 0.6 of dexamethasone given over two days as well. But, but within that, there's not really enough data to say 0.3 versus 0.6. should also say that the team rejected a systematic review comparing dex versus pred because there had been a conflation of the doses. And, and if you're looking for an answer that's transferable, sometimes that dose conflation can mean that you don't really know where the interest and answer is coming from and, and are less confident about taking it into practice. Looking at these studies, most of them showed no difference between the single dose of dexamethasone and the longer course of prednisolone in terms of the effectiveness for return or, or PRAM scores, the, the sort of measure of severity of asthma attack, but they all showed a reduction in the side effects in the dexamethasone. There was a slight issue in one of the trials where more of the kids came back for repeat steroids and it's a bit unclear as to whether that was to do with the steroid itself or whether it was to do with maybe extra safety netting type that was given. If they'd only been given a single dose, they were more likely to represent because they were concerned that they hadn't had enough treatment in some way. Pulling all of that information together, the team were pretty clear that actually, when you look at these two things, a single dose of 0.3 dex is essentially non-inferior to the usual three to five days of oral prednisolone, and that we should consider doing that perhaps. The the bigger dose, the 0.6 per kilo dose, actually ends up with being a larger prednisolone equivalent dose, so probably shouldn't be given. But we need to think a little bit more about how we put this into practice. Now, if we do switch over, we'll probably have less sick in the emergency department, but we'll also need to do some educating. For example, did you know that the half-life of prednisolone was around about 5 hours, but the half-life of dexamethasone was somewhere between 36 and 54 hours? So if you're giving a single shot, you should also be informing the parents and the young person, if possible, that this drug, when it goes into your system, stays there for a longer period of time. So you don't need the extra doses that you might have had in previous times. These are the sorts of things that I think you really need to think about when you're changing over and administering medicines in a different way. Now, our second clinical query is also from the emergency department, but does contain ondansetron, the revolutionary anti-emetic that actually meant that a bunch of teenagers back in the change of the millennium many, 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 many years ago didn't discontinue their chemotherapy and actually carried on with it. That is not the setting here. Instead, what we're dealing with is a three-year-old who turns up after a head injury, has been sick once, 
otherwise completely well, want to think about sending them home, and somebody says, shouldn't we give them some ondansetron so that then they don't puke again and, and then they can go home and they can have a much nicer time? But in the back of your mind, you start to fear the bleeding inside the skull. And what if giving that ondansetron meant that you would mask significant intracranial pathology? And that's a perfectly reasonable fear to have. So, going out, looking at the literature, is there a randomised controlled trial of thousands and thousands of children, giving half of them on Dancitron, half of them not on Dancitron, to see if this is a safe thing to do? No, there isn't. There are two cohort studies that were collected information prospectively and then looked back at to see which of the kids were given on Dancitron and which weren't, and see if there was a difference between those two groups. Now you may say, what, only two studies? Yeah, I know, it's not very many. But then you look at the size of them, and one of the studies has 28,000 minor head injuries that weren't given a CT up front, and the other one has only 22,000 minor head injuries that weren't given a CT up front. Within that, there are about 6,000, just over 6,000 kids who did get on Dancitron, and the rest of them didn't. And then they looked very carefully to see what the difference between those two groups was. The top line answer is there was not a difference in the significant intracranial pathology in the groups given on Dancitron and not given on Dancitron. What there was, was an increase in the Dancitron giving group in coming back into the emergency department. It was difficult to exactly work out why, but the authors of these things felt that there was an increased level of safety netting advice given to those groups who'd been given the ondansetron. And, and that makes so much sense. If you're concerned that this is going to mask something, you might up the clinical concern that you're expressing to the parents to bring them back if things aren't going the right way. When we're talking about the difference between that, we're talking about 3% versus 2% reattendance. We're not talking about absolutely enormous numbers here. And so maybe you can start thinking, well, this is a fair thing to do. It doesn't mask problems. It reduces the number that are going to be sick. And that's a good thing for, for carpets and for everything else. Maybe we should be thinking about giving out on Dancitron in those where we think they're going to be better off not puking rather than not. It's a tricky one. And many of the times when we're moving into a situation where we are dealing with a risk that is theoretical rather than one that's proven, we end up in a situation where we struggle to work out what is exactly the right thing to do. We have to grasp the best evidence to go forward. Revisit it, but take that forward and make sure we do what is best overall. Now, how can we practically do all this stuff? Have you been in a situation where you've been searching in evidence-based medicine and trying to get hold of the acquiring of this in order to appraise it and then apply it in practice, but, but you've come unstuck at the acquire stage? Most of us have. And, and what we can do is we, we, we often have the skills to finesse the structured clinical question and we might even understand the intricacies of network meta-analysis inconsistency. And we might have a stakeholder grid all ready to go so that then when we've got the evidence we know who to influence and in what way and implementing the thing. 
But if we can't find the evidence in the first place, all of that stuff is basically pointless. So, how can we improve our chances of our searches succeeding? Now, the answer slightly depends on what problem you're facing, but a good basic platform in searching is important. Firstly, understand the truncation characters. Work out on your search engine, what is it that you put in where it says, and any word that starts with this. So, child followed by a star, does that mean child's, children, childhood, a truncation character. What is the mapping? Some databases, when you put a word in, it goes away and it looks up, oh, this one means these things, and it searches not just for the word you've put in, but also those mapped words that go out. Can you break up your search and find words that describe the patient group and the problem that they have and the main intervention and them together? What is this group combined and this group combined and this group combined? Don't put your outcomes in there. Almost always putting outcomes into an electronic search ends up with you losing loads of good stuff and coming down with next to nothing. And that is usually because the outcomes as you want to understand them and look at them aren't included within what people would have tagged or what people would have put on the abstract and there's so many different ways of describing those things. You may go into fine tuning. If you have too many results then think about focusing down on the medical subject headings, the MESH terms or the M-tree terms. When you look at those results are you including patients for a particular group that you could do with just dropping out? Could you do that better by using more specific ways of describing those patients? If you've got the ability to use a search hedge, that is a filter that takes out those of low methodological quality, can you do that? Put all of these things together and have a look, if you've got one, to see if you are capturing in your search the ideal paper that you know exists and this is certainly something that we do within systematic reviews and we say do these searches find these nuggets these studies that we definitely need to be include if so have a look at them how are they tagged what words are they using use some of those within your search and put the best bets back into your search on all of this basically the old average is true what you need to do is practice 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 and ask a librarian for extra help so that's the podcast this month we hope you've enjoyed it if you want to submit your archimedes please go onto the website follow the instructions get involved get included it is a wonderful thing to do and we look forward to speaking to you next month